This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, this is Positive Parenting, and I'm Armin Brott. Can joy be cultivated? Would you like to teach your children practices that can increase their well-being and enable them to meet inevitable stresses with presence, self-compassion, and openness instead of fear and worry? Can adults and children simultaneously practice steps to become more resilient, compassionate human beings? And when joy is awakened, does it mean one is always bright and bubbly, or can we be present to all of our emotions and still draw from a deep well of relaxing nourishment? Would you like to know that you're giving your children gifts that will last them a lifetime and change the very way they interact with the world? I think we all would. Whether you're a parent, a teacher, or a caregiver, if you have ever thought about any of the questions I just went through, this interview today is going to be for you. We're going to be talking about how to awaken joy. Now, some people have got trouble with the word joy, and I think I may be one of them. It just seems a little over the top and too bubbly and too cheerful. Now, in today's show, we're going to be using the word joy to describe all of the healthy states of mind that bring us ease of well-being. Things like contentment and peace and happiness, calm, delight, and open-heartedness, just to name a few. But whatever word fits your temperament and means those things, that's going to be your replacement for the word joy. And it all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Bullying is not kids being kids. It's not about good homes or bad homes. It's not a normal part of growing up. I shouldn't be afraid to get on the school bus. To turn on my computer. Message from lock to my locker. Did you know that a bully will stop his or her behavior in 10 seconds when their peers speak up? Use your voice. Hey, leave him alone. We have the power to stop bullying. Find out more at bullying.org. Where you're not alone. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Michelle Liliana, who's the co-author with James Barras of Awakening Joy for Kids, a hands-on guide for grown-ups to nourish themselves and raise mindful, happy children. Michelle, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I think we need to start off with a little bit of a basic definition of joy, because I think uh, you, I mentioned this in, in my introduction, that you know, people hear the word joy and you think everybody's running around smiling and, and happy, which is not a bad thing, but mm-hmm. that's not necessarily what you're talking about. No, uh, joy, as we're looking at it, is uh, really bringing in healthy states of mind, such as uh, calm, delight, uh, building resiliency, just being able to meet what comes at you in each and every day. Okay, and is that something that, you know, it seems like if you were to think of a word for, would be kind of a synonym for childhood, it would be joy. I mean, kids are are kind of that way naturally. So why do we need to awaken this in them if it's already there? Well, it is there, uh, but a lot of kids, for whatever reasons, you know, um, come into my classrooms and my life, even at the age of five or six, and they're carrying huge burdens on their shoulders already. Um, so, you know, we're looking at how we can help them navigate through life and, and really what they meet every day in life. And what do you mean by huge burdens? What kind of things are you seeing? 
Well, you know, I, I think even uh, yesterday, or actually Friday in the classroom, I had a little girl uh, come in absolutely distraught and sobbing because she felt her dog was going to die that day. And, you know, kids haven't often met death in the face or uh, even just getting through the emotions of something that is so challenging as losing somebody or something. Okay. And I guess that, so you're talking about things even broader, divorce and neighborhood violence or being bullied, I would imagine, all fall into the same category of burdens. Absolutely. Yeah. And everybody has a different level and um, of what they're going through each day. Uh, for some children, it, it, it can be really basic, like the, the burden of not even having enough to eat or hearing a family fight in the evening. And for other children, it could be that someone looked at them wrong in their mind. Well, with something that's so broad, I mean, some of those things, I mean, just that last one, for example, I mean, some people would say, okay, I can understand the uh-huh. impending loss of a pet or of a grandparent or of a parental uh, marriage or gun violence or, you know, something like that. Okay, that can be one, but uh-huh. somebody looked at them wrong seems like a different category. It is a different category in a sense, but what we're trying to do through the work uh, James and I present is build the muscles of resiliency. So then when kids come across big things, they're able to cope much easier. So the little the little pieces they can meet up against, and then when it's something really big, they have the skills and they have um, the conditions to to meet and hopefully uh, thrive through those situations. Well, I was just thinking about, you know, uh, one of the biggest things in school is children being able to uh, speak out loud in front of the classroom. And so many times I get notes from parents saying, my child will never do this. They can't do this. They've built this to be such a big thing that they can't even come to school for some children. So, you know, starting them really small where they're speaking into a tape recorder, hearing their voice, maybe they're on a phone call, you know, practicing asking for things at the grocery store, building these tiny little steps so when the bigger things happen, you know, it's much easier for them to do well. Did you ever see the movie The King's Speech? I think, yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. You know, there there was a wonderful scene in there where the the king, who has a, a terrible stammer, is hooked up to a record player, and he's got headphones on, and the, he's it's blasting something. It's blasting some kind of music into his ears. And then the, the guy who's working with him, the coach or the instructor, has him read something. And then he, he is recording what's being read. And so while the king is being completely distracted by this noise in his head, he's able to read without any sort of stammering at all. Uh, which I always thought just seemed like a, a, a wonderful thing that you're you're getting in a way you're getting yourself out of your own way. There, you're you're not able to think about the things that distract you, and you're able to yeah. move on. So yeah, just, absolutely beautiful. I love that. So, what are the things that that kids are doing? I mean, how you know with with a book like this or the work that you're doing, mm. you obviously can't deal with an in every single individual kid. So, how do you begin to start? laying the groundwork for this resiliency we're talking about. Right. So I'm a mom of two boys. They're 18 and 22 years old. 
and I teach little ones that are um, seven and eight years old in the in the classroom. And one of the biggest things that we do at the beginning of the day, this is in the classroom, is uh, a couple of minutes of just breathing. We do it in a lot of different ways, but a lot of times they just come in, sit down. Somebody is at the um, light switch, turns the lights off. Parents are coming in and out. Little brothers and sisters can come in and out, and they more than uh, not come and join us. And the children just put their hands on their tummy, and they basically start to slow down, breathe, and come into the classroom. And that sets a tone for the entire day. So they're they're doing a quick meditation? Yeah, I don't often call it meditation. Um, I simply name what it is. They are they are breathing, and there's uh, lots of ways that we can go about settling our mind or focusing our mind. That's one way that I do to bring the whole class together. And then we uh, often do different exercises to bring us into our bodies, to feel our bodies on the ground. And... Um, Often we also start with a walk around the school and we get outside into nature and, and just notice what's happening in the world. You know, you're dealing with kids who are able to do this kind of thing, but they mm -hmm. probably are not able to articulate or maybe not even understand, if you were to explain it to them, the connection between this and whatever issues they're having in their lives that are causing them the burdens that you spoke about. So how do you, or do you even need to explain that? Uh, I, I actually find you don't need to explain it depending on the age, but kids are so articulate. You know, the other day um, somebody came in and was very anxious, and we just talked about what makes us feel anxiety, and the kids just, they could name them off in seconds. And then we just talked about ways as a group, like we brought everybody contributed, to calm ourselves down, and we wrote it all up. The kids drew pictures because, you know, you're right. Sometimes kids may not be able to articulate it, but what they can do a lot of times is draw something or they can uh, show you in a little dance or a little play what they're feeling. And how do you explain, though, to them that, so you have a girl who comes and she's weeping, her, her dog mm -hmm. she thinks is going to die. Do you say, yep. sit down, close your eyes and breathe or... I mean, is there more to it than that? Yeah, there's, there is so much more to it. You know, um, this is, for me, this is years. I've taught for 25 years in the classroom. And, um, you know, I've, I've tried so many things. When I uh, met James four years ago, I took his Awakening Joy course and started, uh, even before that, I've always been the social-emotional um teacher I think I could call that in the school that was always a huge interest of mine and learning about the brain and how that affects the body so there's a there there'd be a huge amount of tools I'm bringing in in that moment but really just letting uh, a child speak you know and not trying to make it better so often as parents we we don't want to see our children crying or upset but it's so important just to allow that that those feelings to be okay where they are in the classroom or at home and just to listen without trying to change it just to listen just try to be there as best you can and just kind
kind of a big wave of emotion and then it and then it kind of sinks down a little bit and that's after that where you know I might say can you feel your feet on the ground right now yeah yeah I can you know I mean that's one thing people do in in if they're in a panic at having a panic attack is to make sure that you come back into the body so you hmm. can feel your body I'm talking with Michelle Liliano, who's the co-author of Awakening Joy for Kids, a hands-on guide for grown-ups to nourish themselves and raise mindful, happy children. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Michelle. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Michelle Liliano, who's the co-author with James Barras of Awakening Joy for Kids. And we were talking a little bit about getting grounded and, and coming back to the body. Uh, an, another part of this whole awakening joy thing is gratitude. And we've talked about that a lot on the show. We've talked to some authors about gratitude. And I think it's, it's a, a, I don't know, I, I don't want to say trite, but it's, it's a, a, such a simple kind of a thing to do that can have such positive effects. But it's hard to understand because it seems so simple. Can you explain how, what what gratitude expressions are, are like and the effects that they have? Sure. Um, one of the favorite practices my students do, I'll give you two, I'll do one at home and, and one at, uh, or one at school and one at home, is I started to work on what we call sparkles. So at the end of the day or the end of the week, for teachers I'd say, you know, just start with once if you can because it's such a busy time. We sit down and children go inside and they think of somebody or something that happened to them that they give thanks for. And I can't tell you how much they love doing sparkles. They'll sit down and their name may or may not be mentioned, but the, they just absolutely light up not only sharing, but receiving that sparkle. And all they say at the end of the receiving end is, thank you, that's it. And the whole place is buoyant. And my experience is when parents come in at the end of the day and they're sitting there and a child says, you know, thanks for making my lunch today, mom, or whatever it is, it, it, it just amplifies uh, a sense of joy and connection for everyone in the room. How do you think that works? Well, I mean, it sounds almost magical. Mm-hmm. because it just seems completely counterintuitive. You, I mean, people are saying thank you on your welcome all the time without it having any kind of impact, mm-hmm. or maybe we, maybe it is having an impact and we don't realize it, but it just seems like something that, you know, we always tell our kids to say please, say thank you, uh, and, and, and it becomes rote after a while as opposed to something that actually has meaning. Well, I think you're exactly right there. Uh, it, that, in that sense, it is rote. I know for me, when I get a thank you that is a real thank you, rather than, oh, thanks for that, I, I, I just had the experience. I was actually down in California a couple of weeks ago, and the lady at the ticket booth was having uh, a really hard time trying to get passengers on the plane. And she helped me with what I was doing, and I stopped her. And, I mean, this might sound kind of woo-woo, but anyways, I did it. And I stopped her, and I said, will you just look at me for a minute? And she thought I was going to share something I could tell by her face she was bracing and I said thank you so much for getting you know me on this uh, flight smoothly and checking my ticket I so appreciate that 
and I really meant it. I, 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 that energy, it was the energy that went to her. It wasn't, oh, thanks. And she said, you know, I don't remember being thanked like that. Thank you. <laughs> you made my day. You know, and I just thought, wow, if I can convey that real energy of gratitude, like it really is meaningful. And kids, they don't say things, you know, often to me. Like, I don't expect kids to say please and thank you necessarily. You know, like, you better. It's an energy of real gratitude. And what I wanted to share in my own family is with my boys, every night at dinner, we have always, well, for many, many years, we've held hands and said one thing or two that we're grateful for. And at first it was kind of awkward as we go around the circle, but the boys know we're not eating until it's done. <laughs> this is every day? Every night, wow. every day. Yeah. And these are big guys. My boys are six foot five now, so they're men. Um, but it has built this beautiful uh energy in our home of just something you're thankful for you know it might be thanks for making dinner mom or I thank them out loud thanks for bringing up the garbage can I didn't when I didn't even ask you to and from there we've also um, been able to bring in their father who we uh, were divorced so we're thank we give thanks for him and he's they're able to bring their their whole lives to our table and if there's one if there's one practice I would say to your your listeners out there today that really made a huge difference in our lives, it's being able to really give gratitude for something in your life that day instead of just coming up to the table and digging in, but just slowing down for that moment. And I think between couples, you know, whatever the the family structure is, to be able to share that love. Uh, in front of your children, you know, thanking each other for something that day. I, I think it's really potent. Yeah. You know, I'm having this issue now with my 13-year-old, and I'm sure everybody has issues with their 13-year-old, but what our, this little thing that we're going through now is her unwillingness or refusal sometimes to say thank you for anything. Mm -hmm. And I, I've tried to explain to her that I don't need some huge thank you, but it just... It, it makes me feel, you know, important or it makes me feel cared for or needed or something when, I mean, I'm, for just the, like the most basic things. I mean, we had a little a testy exchange. She called me in the car. I shouldn't have answered the phone. I shouldn't be talking on the phone in the car, but I did. And she said, can you please renew my library books? And I said, okay, I'll do that. No problem. Why don't you just text me the phone number of the library? Because I don't want to be digging around on my phone while I'm driving. And so she did, or she said yes, and I said, I think I said thank you. And then I renewed her books, and she didn't say thank you for that. <laughs> and it just, it mm. bugged me. And so she's, you know, taking a very strong stand that, well, you know, I didn't thank her for something else a few days before, whatever it is. I mean, how do you, how do you have a conversation with a kid and explain how important that can be? Yeah, I, I know. I mean, I think this is, this is the uh, the Achilles heel of all parents, isn't it? <laughs> In some ways, we do so much. Um, my my answer or my thought is when I can slow down and I'm not triggered anymore to go and sit with her and, and say, you know, I, I really heard that uh, there were some things I missed thanking you for. Do you want to talk about them? You know, to give her the empathy first. And then... Um, 
talk about there's some things, you know, that that was really hard when I was driving and I really wanted to serve you. And at the same time, I just wanted some acknowledgement. You know, when I'm calm enough, sometimes I find that's a better time. It still may be difficult, you know, but just saying it, I think is important that you are a human being on the planet and you're working really hard to, to help your, your child in that moment. So talk about a few other ways that you are helping to awaken joy with the kids. Yeah, so what I wanted to do is just tell you a little bit about the, the book and the structure. Is James, um, he honestly, he's the most amazing, uh, one of the most amazing people I've ever met. And I am so grateful to be writing this work with him. And he wrote practices throughout the book um, for adults. First and foremost, we wanted to nourish adults. And he created a book for this called Awakening Joy with Shoshana Alexander, and it's 10 Steps to Awakening Joy. I won't name them all because I I think we're probably getting a little bit short on time. Yep. Yeah, so um, what happened after that is I wrote the practices for the parents and teachers to do with children around each of his 10 steps and I tested them all in the classroom you know with I've taught for so many years with hundreds of kids and I also put in um, resources so that uh, if teachers or parents want to get some more books to read on the the um, one of the steps they're fully supported and in the very back of the book I structured how I run my classroom looking through the lenses of these 10 steps um, so that teachers aren't feeling like they're doing anything more or parents honestly they can just sit back and say I'm actually doing a lot of these things and these are ways I can strengthen the practices to build resiliency in my children okay and so you, so you think it was a nice segue into the teacher part of things that this is something mm-hmm. that teachers can incorporate into their everyday teaching and what would they expect to see as a result right so yes they can incorporate it For me, I was frustrated with extra programs being put on top of me and how to incorporate it. So I wrote this book as a teacher. I know know I've been in the trenches. (laughs) And what they can expect is, this is what I know to be true, is the kids are much calmer. They're much kinder. They're able to soothe themselves more of the time. They're able to um, self-regulate their behavior. And I'm not saying this happens instantly. It doesn't. I'm in a brand new year with a brand new class, and I am, I would use the word titrating my practices every day. But I do know by the end of the year, the class is much uh, functioning as a whole. It, mm. it really is. It's, it's quite remarkable. You know, I, yeah. I really, I wouldn't do this if I didn't totally believe in, in what I've done. Michelle Liliana, co-author with James Barras of Awakening Joy for Kids, a hands-on guide for grown-ups to nourish themselves and raise mindful, happy children. Michelle, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! 
why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Remember, adopt. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. Hey, are you looking for some new video games to play with the family as the weather cools down, or maybe something portable to get you through those inevitable, incredibly long and annoying holiday travel delays? Well, here are some of our current favorites. Paper Mario Color Splash from Nintendo. This newest entry in the beloved Paper Mario series takes Mario to the formerly colorful Prism Island, where someone is draining the land of all its color and paint. As the hero we all know and love, Paper Mario comes along to save the day with his paint hammer, which splashes color on colorless portions of land and flowers and characters, houses, and even water. This game plays like the other games in the series where combat is turn-based, but it also includes cards that describe what moves can be used next. The game is a blast to play for RPG fans or Mario fans in general, and if you're new to Paper Mario, this is a perfect place to start, giving you an interactive role-playing experience that will help you paint-smash some dull areas of your own life. It's available only on the Nintendo Wii U, Retails for about 60 bucks. You can get more at Nintendo.com. Metroid Federation Force from Nintendo. Metroid is a longtime Nintendo fan favorite, but Nintendo created quite a bit of controversy when they developed Federation Force instead of continuing the Samus saga in the Metroid Prime universe. That said, Federation Force is an interesting spin on a familiar game setting, and characters... This title picks up after the events in Metroid Prime 3 Corruption and follows the Federation Force in their pursuit to clean up the galaxy by battling Metroids, space pirates, and various other alien creatures who are causing problems across three familiar planets. This game differs from other Metroid Prime installments in its emphasis on teamwork and group-based shooting instead of exploration. Nintendo also removed the touchscreen-based elements of Metroid Prime Hunters and the scanning ability of Metroid Prime. Players can adopt several specialties depending on which weapons, including a healer weapon with heavy fire missiles, they choose to load out before each mission. Federation Force also includes an arena-style combat soccer mode called Blast Bowl. You get both in retail stores or the eShop for $39.99 or at Nintendo.com. The Yokai Watch 2, Bony Spirits, and the Yokai Watch 2, Fleshy Souls, both from Nintendo. The main story revolves around our protagonist, Nate, as he solves mysteries involving the spirit world by using his Yokai Watch. These two new games delve deeper into the origins of the Yokai Watch and engage players in the watch's humble beginnings. The story in Yokai Watch 2 deals with a war of epic proportions between Yokai, who still have time to help various townspeople and take mini quests along the way. It also includes bug catching. If you're looking for a fun, easy to pick up and play RPG with monster collecting, Yokai Watch 2 is perfect. And if you're a general RPG fan and looking for something with an odd flavor, or you just love the TV show, you won't want to miss this. Both are available now for the Nintendo 3DS and retail for about 40 bucks a piece. 
the galaxy-style 3DS from Nintendo. There's no shortage of consoles and gaming devices out there, but one of the newest, and in our opinion, the prettiest, is the Galaxy Blue 3DS XL, which Nintendo released in honor of the new planet scientists just discovered. Lovers of science, astronomy, or just really cool artwork will love this space-themed, shimmery design. It's a limited edition, so you'll have to act quickly. With tons of family-friendly games, the Nintendo 3DS family is the best-selling video game system in the United States. 3DSs retail for about $199, and they're available at stores or at Nintendo.com. If you'd like to get reviews of more toys and games that you can do with your family, please check out parentsatplay.com. Hey, but hold on. We're not done yet. We've got a lot more positive parenting coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. You must be your fairy godmother. <laughs> yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under 4 foot 9 need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Many parents miss the important step of booster seats. Maybe you better explain things to him. Booster seats raise your child up so that a safety belt designed for adults will fit and protect them properly. Oh. That does make a difference. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number. And get your little pumpkin there safely <laughs> in a booster seat. Hop in, my dear. Oh, thank you. And like Cinderella, you can live happily ever after. It's like a dream. A wonderful dream come true. For more information, visit boosterseat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brat from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, this is the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat. If you're the parent of a child who has an unhealthy relationship with the cell phone, video games, or other screen media, you are in good company. There are millions of parents who feel confused and out of control when it comes to managing their children's screen media use. Recreational screen time is quickly replacing family time, and parents are making the best decisions we can based on the information that we have. A lot of us who are trying to challenge the accepted reality that nothing can be done are looking for a new approach. And that's exactly what we're going to be trying to work towards in this part of today's show. And we're going to be taking an approach that doesn't blame parents, which is nice, and it doesn't vilify technology as a whole, because trying to vilify technology is just a completely useless thing to do. Instead, we're going to talk about easy and effective strategies that you can implement immediately. And to help us out with that is a psychotherapist who has more than 30 years of experience with kids, and most recently he's got a lot of experience working with screen-dependent kids. He's going to be giving us some tools for detecting the presence of an issue with our children's recreational screen media use. And perhaps more importantly, he's going to help us get that screen dependence under control. The result, hopefully, will restore a sense of care and connection within your family. We'll start talking about breaking free of screen dependence when Positive Parenting continues right after this. 
Did you know 26 million Americans have kidney disease and most don't know it? The day I was diagnosed, I didn't know what to do. I called the National Kidney Foundation, and the young lady who answered stayed on the phone with me and walked me through step by step. She, too, was surviving kidney disease. And she showed me there could be life after kidney disease. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guests for this part of today's show are George Lynn and Cynthia Johnson, who are the co-authors of Breaking the Trance, a practical guide for parenting in the screen-dependent child. George and Cynthia, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Let's start off with the word screen-dependent or the phrase screen-dependent. I, I use with my daughter, my 13-year-old, the, the word addict when I'm talking to her uh, and just telling her that with the things that she says about, oh, I can stop any time, I don't really need it, you know, the things that, that that's the vocabulary that addicts use, and she behaves like an addict. But you make a, a really clear distinction between addict and screen dependent. Yes. Um, yeah, thank you, Armin. Um, that's a, uh, we would say that uh, screen media use, recreational screen media use, can really fit the definition of a, an addiction in its most severe form. However, we've written this book for a more moderate, uh, you know, issue. We're talking here in terms of screen use. This would be around eight hours a day. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics consider that, considers that moderate use. And what we've seen uh, with regard to this is that uh, this kind of uh, use, unlike an addiction, uh, can be discontinued without the severe, you know, physiologic effects that are associated with with an addiction, uh, and we also believe that the, from our research and from uh, review of the literature, et cetera, and our the clients that I work with as a psychotherapist, that this is a practice that is pushed by the availability of screen media. So unlike other addictive states, um, if this if parents uh, you know, tell, tell children that they can't use screen media or that they put limits on screen media use at home, there will be a temporary, you know, display, typically display of uh, aggression or depression or anxiety, but then within a day or two that will fade. And uh, there is some information, uh, some research provided by other authors that indicates that when people, uh, such as at a, uh, a media-free camp for kids, after uh, they're in a media-free camp environment, after four or five days, the children start talking with each other. So right. unlike the conventional right. you know, idea of the addiction, we, we just consider this mm -hmm. wouldn't quite fit into that category right now. Right. No, I guess as you're saying that, I'm thinking, well, people are probably not going to start selling their property to buy more screens or you know, the kinds of things you right, hear about. Right, right. And addictive behavior is also pushed by shame. And we notice that, you know, the students that I work with daily don't have that shame around mm -hmm. uh, their, their game. Yeah, there's very little shame in hiding because mm -hmm. it's, it's not considered an addiction. And it's pervasive. Yes. Well, speaking of pervasive, um, <clears throat> I want to ask George specifically because you talk about in the introduction of the book 
about how when you first went into psychotherapy practice more than 30 years ago, kids were coming in and parents were coming in with their kids with, with problems, with trauma or something like that. And now you're saying that 80% of the children, teens and young adults, are coming in with some sort of screen dependence. And clearly that's not going to be a representative sample of the whole rest of the of the population because you're seeing a rather self-selecting group anyway. But that's yes. a pretty bold statement to make, that 80% of the kids you're seeing have to do with screen dependence. Yes. Yes, Armin. What we see, what I call that is a, it's a, a masquerade. In other words... Um, what I used to see uh, before the before this problem became so marked, and I'm not sure where that used, you know, where the right place to pinpoint that, but I'll just say in the last, you know, 10 years or so, uh, before that time, uh, I would I've written books in the area of you know bipolar disorder in children, ADD in kids, autism, and I would see kids coming in with frank, uh, you know, psychiatric issues pertaining to those things, and those are those are heavy burdens for children to carry. I was very motivated to help them, and I could. I found out that, uh, you know, using certain strategies, and uh, it was possible to help uh, children that came in with serious psych- psychiatric diagnoses. Now what I see is uh, parents calling me and listing these diagnoses, but when I see the children, uh, they do not show the the. They don't have the the verbal and nonverbal behavior that you would you know associate with a problem like this, uh, bipolar disorder or ADD. What I seem to be seeing is that the the practice of you know screen media overuse at home is actually creating a personality style that is then labeled by typically psychiatrists that don't understand what can happen with screen media use, and they'll label it as a depressive depression yeah. or anxiety or this kind of thing. Cynthia, why don't you talk just a little bit about your perspective, because you're coming at this as an educator and you're mm-hmm. seeing a different group of people than George is. Uh, how are you seeing the manifestations of screen dependence? I'm seeing it on a daily basis with my students. I have a tutoring practice um, in the Seattle area, and um, I see it on a, um, you know, every day, (laughs) Um, where there is a, um, um, the students are typically having a huge issue uh, with school, either failing or lower grades. Um, School is, quote, boring, um, unquote, and those are in capital letters and bold, and um, students um, are not interested in school. They have a lower um, threshold for um, um, tolerance of school in any way. They have a very difficult time reading um, for pleasure, for sure. Um, and um, so those kinds of things. Okay. And I'm curious, uh, I'll talk to George and both of you about this, but you talk about how kids are, are regressing also intellectually and emotionally and morally. And I I remember reading something not long ago about very, very young kids. The pediatricians were starting to see that that their fine muscle control was uh, less than it was in previous years or previous decades, partly because they're swiping instead of actually picking up a block and putting it on top of another block. Uh, Correct. So what, what yeah. kinds of things have you seen on the clinical side, George, for th- that talk about the, the negative effects of screen dependence? 
Yes. Well, you know, you're, in fact, we talk in the book, uh, Armin, about boys' weakness syndrome, which is a, a term that uh, we've coined by, a, a, actually, there's a person we're working with who is a, a, a trainer that has observed this and helped us understand this principle that if kids, especially boy children, if they are not uh, exercising their bodies and dealing with, uh, you know, physical challenge, their bodies won't develop. The testosterone does not express the way it does in a normal normally developing child. So we'll see that, that wan, you know, look. But aside from that, in terms of emotional uh, effects, what I see very marked loss of social confidence. These kids are not out making new friends. They're afraid, in fact, to make phone calls. Uh, there's a uh, significant disorganization uh, that comes with this dependence. It's uh, evocative of a severe ADHD condition. There, some of them actually can be depressed. Uh, there are memory issues that go along with the disorganization. Uh, they can be very moody. And on the extreme end of this, when I talked before about the masquerade, the psychiatric masquerade, they start looking like children who would be formally diagnosed with a severe bipolar disorder. In other words, they have extreme problems with rage and anger at home. They will break things. Uh, they they go ballistic, uh, get very aggressive with their parents. Yeah. So, George, I'm curious yeah. about this. I mean, you're talking about a lot of different things and yes. how this is showing up in a lot of areas. How can you possibly prove that? What, what well, sort of evidence are you relying on? I mean, I know you've got a lot of it in the book, but I want you to t tell, tell our listeners about how you're, you're able to say that the kinds of things, the moodiness and the intellectual impairment and all this other stuff, actually is directly related to screen problems. Well, you know, there's the, in terms of the research, uh, the, the, uh, it would be hard, Armin, just straight across in any particular case to say this is definitely caused by screen media overuse. But what I notice is this. If, I, if a, a child comes in with, say, a serious problem with a, a social anxiety, he's just not getting out there. And um, if the child is on his screen media, the national average is around, for middle school kids, is around eight hours a day. For a teenager, you know, 14 hours a day. If, if, if we have that amount of use, it's simply impossible to determine, given that there is research that says that this practice will cause a fall off in, in social confidence, for example, it's impossible to determine if there really is a social confidence you know, problem in, uh, you know, right there. If a child, um, say, and I, I see this a lot in my practice, I'll say, like, well, when did he get into playing video games? And parents will say, well, everything was good until, like, the ninth grade or the eighth grade or whatever, and then he started having these rage fits. And I said, when, when does he have rage fits? You know, because we're looking here at a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, extreme mood disorder. And they'll say, well, he has rage fits when something goes wrong with his, with his video game or when we try to put limits on it. So I, I'm looking in every case. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, feel, I feel fortunate if I get a kid that comes in and I know for sure that parents are keeping a limit on, the, on his right. screen media use. Yep. Because without that... There's so much fog, I can't tell, and I would really defy even a you know prescribing psychiatrist to be able to see through that to say, I'm giving this kid an antidepressant for a good reason. 
Talking with George Lynn and Cynthia Johnson, who are the co-authors of Breaking the Trance, a practical guide for parenting the screen-dependent child. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to keep talking to George and Cynthia about screen dependence. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, talking with George Lynn and Cynthia Johnson, the co-authors of Breaking the Trance, A Practical Guide for Parenting the Screen-Dependent Child. Uh, I want to go back to something that you said that I thought was very intriguing and very worrisome about testosterone and the problems with boys. Because I'm wondering if this is going to lead to, I mean, to to have some serious problems about in the whole population about whether we're going to have effects on fertility or whether that's going to affect the gene pool. Uh, Talking about with with testosterone not being there, I mean, you're talking about boys who are not going to be masculine in the the general sense of the word. Yes. Well, you know, uh, Armin, thank you, and we're familiar with your background also, your interest in fathering. Uh, I myself have, in the past, in the 90s, wrote a column on fathering. Uh, the, what we see is, yes, there, there, there's an obvious lack in terms of physical development. There can be a, a across-the-board, you know, gamer kids. If you see a whole bunch of, especially boys at game more than anything else, there's not only will you see this this look of weakness, but there's an unwillingness. And when I talk about maturity and identity development, this is where you know what's it like to develop your identity as a male. Things like the willingness to do hard work, things like the willingness to accept a challenge, things like the willingness to make a phone call to uh, you know line up some time outside doing something with a friend. Uh, in fact, things like being interested in girls. I don't see that so much here with this population of boys. I don't see boys uh, wanting to get their driver's licenses uh, across the board. They'd rather have their parents drive them because it's just easier to get back to their rooms and play video games. Whatever, however you de- define, you know, coming of age as a, a young man or a young woman, I see that this practice erodes that, you know, slows that down slows down the development of personal and sexual identity. Well, this is pretty <laughs> pretty serious stuff here. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of laughing about it, but it's, it's nothing to really laugh about. But one of the things you do that I think is very nice is that you say, you know, we're not going to get rid of this stuff. It's just not going to happen. I mean, there's so many pundits out there who will talk about we need to go back to a, a different age where kids played outside right. and and clearly we're going to have to find another way forward what is that way how are we as parents going to help our kids grow up to be productive members of society if they don't want to make a phone call or get a driver's license okay well the first thing to say is that you know the when we talk about this it can feel overwhelming to to talk about it in terms of you know, making an enemy of recreational screen media, that is so not what we're trying to do in this book. What we're saying, Armin, is that in that critical time period, basically before the age of 18, 17 or 18, K through 12, uh, parents can uh, institute controls in their home so that, and we've, I've seen this time and time again, like two types of families here, families that do this and families that don't do it, they can institute controls in their home so that the kids orient to each other with care and you know uh, caring communication in the parents um, and that 
you know, crucial time period. Um, there, there's all kinds of things that you can do. The American Academy of Pediatrics uh, starts with, you know, suggesting making sure that kids are don't use it any more than uh, two hours a day, with one hour of recreational screen media being optimum. Uh, they suggest that parents find out, you know, where their kids are in social media and what they're doing. They suggest that the parents enforce a a, uh, a a curfew in the evening, you know, around screen media use because a big part of the damage we're talking about here, and all the books that are coming out on this topic now, talk about the damage done by, um, you know, sleep deprivation. So all these things, and there's and in the book we suggest sort of the full press, which is sitting down and talking about values in the family and starting this process. I mean, this this is a big part of, you know, instituting screen controls is sitting down with the kids and saying, okay, we're having dinner. We, you're all on your, your, your devices. This stops now. But, you know, talking about the kids, what's going on with that and what they want to see instead. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but I'm saying within that, you know, bubble of growing up in a household, uh, it is possible to first understand what's going on here and, and second, do something about it. With regard to understanding, I'll finish my rant here in just a second, we in the book provide an uh, instrument that's been developed by the Restart Center here. It's a rehab center um, in the Redmond, Washington area called the Bigs P, which gives parents the ability to assess and analyze, you know, how their parents relate to, or how their kids relate to screen media and to decide if it's a problem or not. Well, you know, right um, there, George, let, let me just stop you there. And Cynthia, you can jump in on this, too. How do we tell? I mean, I, you know, in some ways you can say, okay, clearly the kid's got spending a huge amount of time on this. But, you know, they can say, and they would be right, well, I'm texting my friends because we're talking about homework stuff or I'm actually doing something because... So many kids these days have got their homework assignments and their projects and even their books sometimes online. So from the, the casual observer walking by can't always tell whether they're fooling around or they're actually doing something. So how can we as parents look at other factors or symptoms and say, okay, this is going over the line? Yes. Well, okay, again, there's two things, and I'm, I'm you know, looking at the American Academy of Pediatrics as my backboard here. They say that uh, the, a basic thing to look at, and we provide a form for this, just a simple form in the book, is the amount of time a kid spends online. And that may, may not sound like rocket science, but that's really important because parents, uh, kids, once they get into this, will pull the wool over the eyes of their parents, and they really are up typically, you know, to 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, then maybe they have to get up for school at 7 o'clock, they're falling asleep in class. So anyway, the first assessment is how much time they're spending on online. The second assessment is what we provide with this Big P is what the quality uh, of their relationship to screen media is. And that instrument, the Big P, is derived from, you know, DSM criteria for uh, addictive things like, you know, addictive uh, issues like gambling addiction. So you, you, we encourage parents to, to be their own diagnosticians here and to look at it both ways. Then you come down to school. School, I mean, in the, in the book we have a chapter on how you differentiate learning disabilities from a screen-dependent you know, issue. And I like that chapter because I can see why a kid would say, hey, I'm dyslexic, or I'm ADHD, or I'm, this, this is what, why 
why I'm getting bad grades in school. So we think that there are ways to look at that in terms of if you institute a screen control plan and you get things in, under control at home and there's a, you, you know, kids have a certain routine and you know when they're doing their homework and you know when they're turning it in, then if you see bad grades and you, the teachers are telling you the kid is paying attention in class, if you see bad grades, you can say, okay, we've got some kind of a learning problem here that's you know, specific to this child. However, if you see, as is in the case for like 90% of these kids, Armin, these kids are falling asleep in class in the morning. Right, they're not right. paying attention. They're on their devices in class. And so, you know, when parents can do this, they can do the detective work to find out what's going on. And that's what we call breaking the trance. When that happens, they start looking at the problem differently. And from the perspective of the parents, I mean, there's also something I think we need to talk about, which is that a lot of us are also on our devices quite a bit. And so there's a pot calling the kettle black thing when the parents start to say something. If, you know, I've had my, my daughter point this out to me that, you know, I, I do sometimes if I'm waiting in line or killing time in some way, which is a horrible expression, but, you know, I'll, I'll pull out my phone and, and check my email or do some trivia game or something like that. And so we're we're not always setting the best example. Yes, that is so true. Okay, so, you know, here's, here's this little model. Cynthia and I were talking about this today, how in the airplane they say, you know, if the oxygen mask drops down, you know, put it over your face first and then help the person next to you. And that's so true, Armin. Thank you very much. Parents need to set the example. Kids are looking to them for the example. And the, uh, if you're standing in line and you pull out your cell phone, the problem with that is you're not letting that pause be there, you know, that moment of time. So you can re it might be the kind of thing that you turn to your kid or turn to somebody else and relate to them. Uh, there's some, you know, positive thing that comes out of your interaction. You don't know what you're missing. Or when parents come home at night and get on their devices, you know, right away, or maybe there's work to be to be finished. Really what we're talking about here is saying we're putting a different priority on the use of this sucker. You know, we're putting it in the pocket. You know, I'm out here with my kid. I'm not pulling it out. At night, I'm setting the example. You know, I'm limiting the amount of time that everybody even, you know, uh, spends looking at the boob tube, and we just kind of go like, what are we doing together here? You know, what's going on together? So, exactly. yes, yep. the example has to start with parents. George, the bottom line is we need to be real. Absolutely. George Lynn and Cynthia Johnson are the co-authors of Breaking the Trance, a practical guide for parenting the screen-dependent child. George and Cynthia, thank you very much. Great to have you. Thank you, Armin. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.